Good morning, everyone. Uh, I want to share a couple things before we really get into the message. First one is, I was uh, at the hospital this morning visiting a really uh, close friend of uh, the family, and his dad, we've known them as long as we've been Christians, um, Brenda and I, his dad had an unexpected stroke, obviously, uh, and then fell down the stairs, hit his head really bad, and he's been in ICU for about a week now, and um, it just, it kind of, they have, a, they have a large family, they have a large extended family, uh, there's a lot of siblings, and they own a lot of uh, pretty valuable property, and so when that happens, towards the, the potential end of, uh, of a generation, people start worrying about that stuff, and they think about it, so we spent about 30 minutes this morning talking about that, and talking about moving forward, and how, you know, what would be a good way to do that, and at the end of the day, the conversation, or the end of the conversation, not the end of the day, but the end of the conversation that we had with him was, you know, focusing on the eternal versus the temporal, and when we get so caught up, you know, we get so caught up in things, and land, and houses, and who's getting this, and that, and, you know, the potential of that, and while I believe that we've got to be good stewards, and we have to think about that sort of thing, that's not the most important thing when you think about it. So the prayer that we had uh, this morning with him was just that there was going to be unity uh, somehow would come from this tragic event and that over time, as things, hopefully he, his father begins to heal, that what really takes place is uh, healing spiritually within the family because there's a lot of disconnect there. So anyway, uh, we, we prayed about that and God knows that we're thinking about it, so uh, I wanted to give a quick testimony before I get started um, about a quick personal story, uh, and I don't typically like to do that a bunch, but my mentor told me, if you're going to tell a story about yourself, just do it in the third person, like, I know a guy, and then, so if I ever say, hey, I know a guy, there's a chance that it's about me, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to use my name, but I will in this circumstance. Um, I know a guy named Nate, and for the last for the last couple of months, I've been extremely um, absorbed with a work situation, and it's on the the development side, the land development side, and I've I've been consumed with this project that I've been, you know, under. It's been going for three years now, and we're getting close to the, you know, a kind of a D-Day decision. And I've just, I mean, I, I was to the place where I was losing sleep, and my, my wife, I, t I even went to my wife and I said, hey, just so you know, the next couple months is probably going to be, I'm going to be a little shorter than normal, uh, so I apologize in advance, please have some grace and patience with me, and she unbelievably has. Um, but I, I just felt like I was going at it alone, like it was just me figuring it out, make a decision, look at all of the, the, the scenarios and look at the options, and I'm going to make a decision. And I felt completely upside down and, and uh, I mean, very stressed. I preached on anxiety recently, didn't I? Um, and so anyway, I, I got to thinking, you know, the Bible, I finally had to go to God in prayer because we had dinner with uh, Brandon and Tirza uh, over at Kyle and Jess's house when they were here visiting. And we were talking about prayer, and Tirza just, like, challenged me. I said, I don't have a great prayer life. And she says, why not? I said, well, I, I don't know. I just don't have a great prayer life. She's like, well, that's not biblical. 
And man, she just opened up the word. She goes to her purse, grabs the Bible, and just starts book, chapter, verse in me. And I, I was super challenged. And I said, Tirza, would you please pray for my prayer life? And she says, absolutely. So I was challenged by that. And then I started praying about the situation. And God put it on my heart to seek counsel. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 15, it says, Without counsel, plans fail. fail. Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. Or in some loose translations, it says there's much wisdom in counsel. So I went, to four, I went to four men, and I was visiting about this particular issue. Uh, one, I, I talked to my dad about it, um, and then I talked to two uh, entrepreneurial businessmen that have been very successful in their life. And then I, uh, finally, and I went to Steve Wood, who's also an entrepreneur and, I, and a finance guy, and I said, Steve, I'd like to visit with you. And he offered some perspective about this situation. And it seemed like as soon as I followed the biblical concept about seeking counsel, biblical, godly counsel, like the, the brain waves just started firing and connecting. Like the synapses fired, and I had all these different ideas and these thoughts of, well, this would work, and if I could do this, and, and what if I did this? And I mean, I had ideas that I had never even thought of, and those ideas didn't come until I received godly counsel. Now, none of the godly counsel said anything about the ideas that I had, but it freed me up in my mind, in my spirit, to say, God's in charge of this. This is all His. We are stewards of it. And I say all that to say, as we continue to look at the truth of this book, as we continue to look at the Word of God, and we read it and we study it, I'm telling you, from personal experience and from other people I've talked to, it is the number one book we can go to for any issue we're dealing with. It's the, it's the path to peace. It's the, it, it's the highway to happiness. It's the trail to tranquility. I made that up. And I asked Brenda, does that sound corny? She's like, not if you say it right. I'm like, okay. The path to peace. The, the, uh, what was the other one? The highway to happiness and the trail to tranquility. This book, in any situation that you're dealing with, if you consult this book, you're going to get the answer from God. And it may be from counsel. It may be from the Holy Spirit. It may be from the Word. But you're going to get it somehow. And so every year, about once a year, I preach on this subject that, we're about to, that I'm about to speak on today. And I, I, I preach on this subject, and the goal is that when I said three or four weeks ago, uh, the truth will set you free. And then Peg came to me and says, hey, you know, it does say about abiding in Him, and the truth will set you free. So now we have to preach on at some point, what does it mean to abide in Him, Brian? Okay. What does it mean to abide in Him? But, but looking at this book, I, I believe that the answers to what we need are in here. And once a year I preach on this passage, and at least once a year, a lot of in Bible studies I'll preach on it, or this idea, this concept, and I recognize that there's a lot of differing opinion when it comes to this particular doctrine, this particular teaching. There's a lot of different belief systems. And my goal this morning is that we're going to look at the biblical word, the biblical truth, and the, the biblical concept of this subject of baptism. Because I've preached for a couple of weeks now on the truth will set you free. 
And now I want to look at the truth as it goes to the word baptism. And when we hear that word, baptism, when we just hear that word, the word baptism, our mind's eye goes in different directions. My mind's eye, naturally, goes to early 2004. And my wife and I were baptized in water at Northeast Christian Church by Chris Coleman. She was my fiancé at the time. We had gone through marriage counseling. So when I hear the word baptism, my mind goes back almost 20 years ago. Some people, when they hear the word baptism, will go back to their confirmation in the Catholic Church, which will then bring them back to when they're babies and they're born and they're baptized by a priest surrounded by friends and family. Other people, when they hear the word baptism, will hear your head being poured upon by a member of the Presbyterian clergy at around eight years old over a bowl of water with a towel to wipe off any excess water that gets around your face and on your clothes. Right? Some people don't even hear or in their mind's eye see water or think about water when they hear the word baptism. They think of baptism maybe of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we find that in, uh, oh, I had it right here. It's, it's in one of the passages. We'll look at it a little bit later. So those are, the, those are kind of the, the, the mind's eye where they go when people hear the word baptism. Every one of you probably have a different experience, a different understanding, a different knowledge, a different opinion, and that's okay. It's okay to have all those things. My goal this morning is to just dissect the Scripture, and then whatever you believe after just like I said about marriage and child-rearing, it's between you and God. I just want to look at what the Scripture says about this particular word, this particular subject. So, sprinkling, pouring, immersing are all three applications that are used or that are thought of when people hear the word baptism. You were sprinkled as a Catholic. You were uh, poured upon as a Presbyterian. You were immersed as a Protestant, if that's the right way to say that. But I want to look at the words that are used in the New Testament when it comes to those three things. So in the New Testament, the word sprinkle or sprinkling or aspersion or to render besprinkled is the word rantizo. R-H-A-N-T-I-Z-O. Rantizo. And those, that word is used two or three times in the New Testament. And in Hebrews chapter, I'm going to give you an example, in Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 13, it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So sprinkling of defiled persons. He's saying, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, the sprinkling of of the defiled persons with the ashes of heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So He's saying, if the blood of bulls and goats, when they 
when they sprinkled the blood of bulls and goats, it says that later in Hebrews 11 and 12, if they sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats or the ashes of a heifer and they sprinkle that on the defiled person and that made them pure and holy, how much more will the blood of Christ make them pure and holy? So that's an example of sprinkle found in the New Testament. Now, an example of pouring found, the word pour is ekuno, and it means to pour, to pour forth, to bestow, to gush out, to spill. And that is an example found in the book of Acts. Now, this is why this is so important, in my opinion, is that it's in the Bible. When we look in the Bible and we see these passages and we understand this is what the writer is saying, it's nice to know the details uh, in, the, in the, the ins and outs of what the Scripture is talking about. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and verse 18, Peter is standing with the eleven. He lifts up his voice. He is dressing the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. He is preaching because the Holy Spirit had come upon them on the day of Pentecost and the tongues of fire rested on each one of them, and they begin to speak in tongues. And these guys are like, oh man, they're drunk. And Peter goes, we're not drunk, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. And then he begins to quote the prophet Joel, and it says in the prophet Joel, in verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, verse 17, Acts 2, 17, says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men will, shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So that is the word pour that's used in the New Testament. I'm going to be very pragmatic about this because the Bible says, abide in me and the truth will set you free. So my goal this morning is to share Biblical truth, whether it's from the Greek, whether it's from the Hebrew, whether it's from the original writings, of what were the writings saying to us? What were the authors of these books telling us? And there is a, there is a word, rantizo, for sprinkling. There is a word for pouring, which is ekuno, an example of both of them. And then finally, the other thing, the other mind's eye that we hear when we hear baptism is like when my wife and I were baptized, or when somebody is baptized, when they're immersed, this is the word for baptize in the New Testament. Interestingly, there's no word for baptism in the Old Testament. Go to your Strong's Concordance. You can't find it because it doesn't exist. So in the book of uh, Hebrews talks about washings, but there's, uh, which kind of alludes back to some of the Old Testament ceremonial washings, but it never uses the word baptize because it's a Greek word in the Old Testament. However, there are five usages of a, I don't want to call it derivative or the primary verb bapto in the New Testament. And the word bapto means to um, overwhelm, to cover fully with fluid, to moisten or to stain with dye. Like if you were to dye a piece of cloth, who here has done the tie-dye thing with their kids? Like two of you? Come on, give me a break. Just engage me. Just thank you. So when they dip or they dye... That is a picture of a bapto that is overwhelming, that is dipping, that is dying, that is covering fully with fluid. The word baptizo is a derivative of the primary word bapto, B-A-P-T-O, and baptizo means to make overwhelmed, fully wet, wash, ceremonial ablution. 
The word baptisma is derived from the above definition and means baptism. Baptistes is like John the Baptistes, John the Baptizer. It's, a, it's a, an explanation of who John is. And then baptismos means washing. And that's what we see in Hebrews 6 when we look at the elementary teachings about Christ, the ceremonial washings. That's baptismos. That's ablution, that's washing. That's found in Hebrews, found in Hebrews 6. So another interesting thing, in my mind, when you hear the word baptism, like I said, some people don't even hear or see water. They think spirit. They think the Holy Spirit. Raise your hand if you thought the Holy Spirit were like baptism. Is there baptism in the Holy Spirit? Of course there is. Of course there is. So in Acts chapter 1, if you go back a page, this, this word in the original writing in Acts chapter 1, when it says baptizo, is the, uh, it's, oh, what, what Greek number is it? Set, uh, it doesn't matter. It's in the Strong's Concordance. I, it, it does matter, but it doesn't. So the Greek word is baptizo, which means to make overwhelmed or cover holy. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is with the 11, and they are standing around talking to God, or it's talking to Jesus, and they're hearing what he wants them to do. And he says to them in verse 4, Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father, we find in John 14 and 16, was the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit because he's going to teach you. He's going to guide you. He's going to convict you. He's going to love you. He's going to be your, he's going to be your helper. He's going to help you get through this life. And so in Acts chapter 1, he tells them, don't leave Jerusalem yet, but wait for the promise that my father told you about. And he says, he said, you heard from me, verse 5, Acts 1, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's when Jesus was on earth, he was talking to his 11 apostles, and he says, but you will be baptized, you will be, and that word in the Greek is baptizo, which means to be fully uh, overwhelmed or washed. So they weren't washed with water, they weren't fully overwhelmed with water, they were fully covered and overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit of God. And he says, in a few days you're going to experience that. So years ago, I did this study on baptism in the Holy Spirit because it was just, it was mind-boggling to me that so many people argued and debated over the simple subject and the simple act of baptism. And so I went to the, the, the Bible and I, and I said, okay, where does baptism of the Holy Spirit happen? At what point does it occur? And there are two times that I've found, I'm write it down, check uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, please. There are two times that I find in the book of Acts, from Acts 1 to Acts 28, where there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit without the laying on of hands. That's why it's important. Not with the laying on of hands, but without the laying on, without the laying on of hands. Where somebody is just talking, and the Holy Spirit comes down and dwells on the people that the speaker is talking to. The first one is in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when they received the Holy Spirit and it says 
on uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now this is, Jesus had already ascended into heaven, and Jesus had said, don't leave Jerusalem yet. I want you to go ahead and stay here because you're going to be my witnesses, but you've got to receive the Holy Spirit first. In a few days, you're going to receive it. And he says in verse 3, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's the first example that we have of a baptism of the Holy Spirit which was promised by Jesus to His 11 apostles. Making sense so far? The only time it happens after that is in Acts chapter 10 where you have the Jew and the Gentiles. They're completely separated. And God says all nations will be blessed through Jesus, not just the Jewish nation. And so all nations, Jew and Gentile, slave free, Jew, Greek, they're all going to be blessed through Abraham's seed. They're all going to be blessed through Jesus Christ. And so Peter gets this vision from God. He says, hey, I want you to go talk to this guy who's a Gentile. So he goes to the Gentile's house. He, began, he has a vision, and this other guy has a vision. I'm shortening the story. So he goes and he crosses the threshold of this Gentile, and he begins to preach Jesus to him. And as he's speaking, the Holy Spirit, this is Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit of God comes down upon the household of Cornelius. And he begins to speak in other tongues. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 10, verse 44. And this is the only other time that I have found in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happened without the laying on of hands. It wasn't Peter coming to Samaria and laying hands on anybody and saying, oh, they've received Jesus, but they haven't received the Spirit. This is miraculously. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, it says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. The circumcised meaning the Jewish people. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So we have not only the baptism of the Holy Spirit happen in Acts chapter 10, miraculously, we also have the baptism in water that happens. Because Peter is going, these are Gentiles. The Holy Spirit is proof that God has accepted them, Acts chapter 11. And so, who can keep these people from being baptized in water? So we have both the spirit baptism in Acts chapter 10, and we have the water baptism in Acts chapter 10. So what is the point of all this? What's the point of looking at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 1? What's the point of looking at bapto versus baptismos versus rantizo versus ekmuno or, or what was it again? Uh, ekkuno. What is the difference in looking at all these things? What's the point of looking at this? The point is 
I want to look at the concept, the biblical concept of being freed from sin. That's what I want to look at. I want to study what does the Bible say about being released from the bondage of sin. Because the Bible talks about it. And the Bible is very clear about that. And some will say, well, why do I need to be freed from the bondage of sin? Why do I need to be freed from the jail that I'm in? And the Bible is clear, and this Bible is talking to every human that walks the face of the earth. And if you go to the book of Romans, some people like to call this book the Roman road of salvation. And if you look in the book of Romans, and we're going to read several passages here, we're going to start in Romans chapter 3. This is not just the bad people that live in the world. This is not just the Adolf Hitlers. This is not the Mussolinis or the Hitler, or I already said him, but you get the point, the Hamas. This is humanity. This is all humans. Starting in verse 9, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then he says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, talking about the Jewish people who are under the Mosaic law. Okay? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... This is very important. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It is through the Ten Commandments that I can say, I am a sinner. I have broken the law of thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain. Thou shalt honor thy father and mother. I have broken that law. The Bible says you break one, you break them all. I have broken the law of thou shalt not do this. And so through the law, through the law, the beginning stuff here, just the ten and then all the 300 plus more that God gave to Moses, through the law, I become aware of what sin is. Now I know that I have done something against God. And it says all Jews and Gentiles alike when he says, but now, or I'm sorry, in verse uh, 21, through the law we become conscious or comes the knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There is a righteousness that comes to mankind and it doesn't have anything to do with the Ten Commandments. You can't follow them good enough for God to say, I owe you heaven. I owe you salvation. You can't. It's impossible. But he says, but now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is through Christ that we're made righteous, not the Old Testament law. And then he says, for there is no distinction. It doesn't matter if you're from the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Dan, the tribe of uh, Asher. It doesn't matter where you, what tribe you're from. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All mankind has fallen short of perfection by sinning. That's what Paul is saying here. That means the guy that's up there behind the pulpit, it means the elder, it means the drug addict, everybody, every human has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So what do we do? So what? What's the big deal? If you go a couple chapters later in Romans 6, he addresses the problem with that. For all have sinned, because through the law we become conscious of sin, and we know that this is wrong, and we've done it, every one of us. And then he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages, that word wages, okay? This is important. That word wages in the Greek is rations for a soldier. His stipend or his pay. That's what that word wages is defined as in the Greek. Wages is the rations for a soldier. What's been earned? Your stipend, your pay. You dig a ditch this long, I'm going to give you X amount of dollars. The wages, what you've earned, the wages of sin, is death. That's what Paul says to the church at Rome. Well, what does this have to do with baptism? What does this have anything to do with baptism? Imagine that you are from outer space. Imagine you are from the uh, planet, come on, Chris, or, uh, <laughs> Rachel, you're quick. Give me a planet name. Make one up. Doop, no, like a made up one. Uh, sarsaparilla, you're from the planet of sarsaparilla. And the, and the spaceship comes and grabs you, and it takes you down, and it lands you down in Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. And it just sets you down. You have a knowledge of God, because God created sarsaparilla, and God created the spaceship to take you down there. But you don't have a knowledge of some of the human interactions with God, according to the Bible. And so on the way from Sarsaparilla to Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and Gaza, on the way, the pilot says, hey, I want to teach you about the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, honor your father and mother, do not covet, da, 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 all these, okay. Don't do these things, because if you do them, you're in trouble. All right, sounds good. So you have a basic working knowledge of the beginning of the, the Bible, the Old Testament, the laws. So you fly down and you land and you're standing there and you're witnessing this guy named Philip. And this guy named Philip 
is having a conversation with an Ethiopian eunuch. And so you come up to Philip as the person on this space shuttle that just got dropped off, and you say, hey, my name's Joe? So boring, Kirk. <laughs> Joe goes, hey, who are you? And he goes, I'm Philip. Oh, hi, nice to meet you, Philip. What are you doing? Well, I'm teaching this guy about Jesus. Well, who's Jesus? Well, Jesus is the, the Lamb of God who died on a cross for our sins. Oh, I heard about sin. Is that breaking of one of the commandments God wrote? Yeah, that's, that's what sin is. Oh, okay. I get it. So what are you telling him about? He goes, well, let's just read the story. So go with me to Acts chapter 8, and Joe, 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 not you, Joe, different Joe, 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 okay, Joe is with Philip, and he is, he is listening to this story, and Philip comes up to this chariot, and this chariot is coming from Jerusalem, and this, this treasurer who's in charge of the money for the queen of Candace, which is a true story. There was a queen of Candace with a lot of money, and she had a treasure. And the treasure is going up to Jerusalem to worship God. And on the way back home, God says to Philip, hey, I want you to go talk to this person in a chariot. And Joe is witnessing this. And Philip comes up, and he hears a voice coming from inside the chariot. And this person, this this Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the scroll of Isaiah, which is an Old Testament scroll, one of the prophets. And so Philip comes up to the chariot and says, hey, do you understand what you are reading? And they say, I, I, I don't know unless somebody explains it to me. And Philip says, I'm going to explain to you what this scroll in Isaiah means. So, if you go to Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 31. You understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So Philip went into the chariot, and Joe was witnessing this. Joe has no previous knowledge of Bible other than he had broken a command. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, who's he talking about? He says, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself, or is he talking about someone else? And Philip says, oh, um, I want to tell you who he's talking about. And he says, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, you're a fly on the wall. You're just a, an alien from Sarsaparilla that came down, and you're just a guy named Joe that's listening to this guy named Philip talk to this Ethiopian eunuch about Jesus. That's all you are. You know nothing other than the fact that Ten Commandments have been broken, and God sent you on this space shuttle to go witness this transaction between God and mankind. And so Philip says, from this very passage of Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Look at the next verse. The next couple of verses. It says, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? 
Philip doesn't say a word that's recorded about being baptized. Not a word. But it stands to reason at some point, at some point during this conversation about Jesus, about Jesus, Philip teaches the eunuch about baptism. It says, so they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, it says the Spirit of God took Philip away. And he went on to do his ministry elsewhere. What does that have to do with the freedom from sin? Sorry guys, so I'm going to go a little longer than normal, but I'm going to. I have one more passage we're going to read, and then we'll finish. But what does this have to do with freedom from sin? We've looked at the Greek meaning for word baptizo or bapto. We've looked at the difference between a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happens twice in the New Testament without the laying on of hands. And we see something like this where Philip goes to the eunuch. We see this with the Philippian jailer, not to be confused with Philip, but the Philippian jailer. Philippi, kind of the same thing. But in Romans chapter 6, in my humble opinion, and believe me, it's that, because I've talked to men that know this book very, very, very well. But in my humble opinion, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, is the most descriptive passage on baptism. It, 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 can't, it, it, it can't be twisted it can't be turned. It can't be changed. It's just Paul, Paul gets done telling them that you get, you get peace through faith, not by works of the old covenant. He, he, he tells them this. He tells them that Abraham was justified before the law of circumcision. He's making this point. He's building up to this idea that it is not works of the law. It is not our good deeds that merit us salvation because that's not what God designed. What He designed was that we needed to be released and freed from the law of sin and death. We are held captive by the breaking of the law. We are held captive by sin. We are held captive by death until Jesus releases us from that law of sin and death. And in Romans chapter 6, He's addressing that and He says, What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? If, if grace is the greatest thing ever, and, and grace became available to us because of sin, and God needed to bring grace so that sin could be covered, should we, let's just continue sinning so that grace can get bigger. We're doing God a favor. And he goes, God forbid that. Do you not know that all of us, in verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Okay, the subject matter in Romans 6 right here is baptism. He's writing to all of the saints in Rome. Go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He's writing to the saints in Rome. And he says, for all of us, who were, have been baptized into Christ, were baptized into His death. So the subject matter is baptism. And then he says, We were buried, therefore, with Him, meaning Christ, by baptism into death, in order that, that's kind of like, so that, in order that, this is what's going to happen. 
Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The subject matter is being buried with Christ in baptism and raised with Him so that we can walk in the newness of life just like Christ rose from the dead. It is a perfect picture of being buried with Jesus in the grave and raised with Him so that we too can walk in the newness of life. And then he goes on to say, for if, that word if is so contingent, for if we have been united with Him in a death like this, or in a death like His, meaning when we're baptized, we're united with Him, we will certainly be united with Him in a resurrection. We know, talk about freedom from sin, for we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be done away with. That is the most beautiful passage that I can think of right now. All of the stuff, the sin, the evil, the breaking of God's covenant, the breaking of God's rules, His wills, the, the filthy life that people live before Jesus, it says that we are freed from sin. That's gone. Do you understand the beauty of that? It's like a free, it's like a start over. Play video games. Oh, I died. Start over. I'm going to start over. That's what this Bible is telling us as we know that our old self was crucified with him. The pain, the struggle, the result of sin. And guys, we can op- we can air the laundry, but we don't need to. Every one of us in this room has things they've done in the past that they regret. That's humanity. And God says, oh, you're embarrassed about that? You're embarrassed about what you did? You hurt people when you did that? You hurt yourself when you did that? Guess what? That person can die. That person can die, and I can raise a new person in your place. And that person will be walking with Jesus at that point. Because you have been freed from the bondage of the wages of sin is death. That's why this is such a powerful passage. He says, he says, we should no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. When you die in the water of baptism, according to Paul in Romans 6, When you die and you're buried with Christ, it says you have been set free from sin. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him or dominion over Him. For death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God so that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin but alive in God, Christ Jesus. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. So when we're raised up out of that water, we are alive in Christ Jesus. We are freed from sin. We are set apart. And then he says, let sin, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. The wages of sin is what? Death. When we are buried with Christ, we are raised with Christ, 
we are set free from death, and now we have the rights as sons and daughters to live a life of freedom. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. When we are baptized into Christ, according to Paul in Romans chapter 6, when we are baptized into Christ, when we are immersed according to the word of baptism, bapto, baptizo, when we are fully overwhelmed, fully wet, buried with Christ, it says that sin will no longer have dominion over us because we are no longer under law because through the law comes sin, but we are under grace. People are like, you're saved by grace. That's right, you're saved by grace. You're saved by grace through faith, not by works. When? When are we saved by grace? Is it the moment Jesus died? That would mean everybody. That would mean that First Peter is wrong when it says that God desires all men everywhere to come to repentance. This subject of baptism is a big deal. Churches make very much light of it. Because I believe there's a spiritual battle that is saying you don't have to die to yourself. You can live the life you want. Acknowledge that Jesus exists. Acknowledge that God is the creator and you'll be fine. But it says here that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are instruments of righteousness. When that death happens, when that death happens and you bend your knee and you go through a baptism of repentance and you say, God, I want to be your servant. That is what Romans 6 is about. Whatever you do with the new knowledge that you've got today, it's between you and God. I don't browbeat anymore. I used to. I don't. I don't anymore. This is between you and the creator of the universe. It's between you and the creator. If you take this new knowledge and you dissect it and you look at the Bible verses and you study the book of Acts and you look at the common thread throughout the book of Acts, are you going to argue with what God's saying? Are you going to accept what God's saying? Are, are you going to contemplate it? Are you going to ignore it? Are you going to consider it? That's between you and God. My prayer is that you, you contemplate it. My prayer is that you study this and you ask yourself, do, do, I, do I want what God has to offer here? Do I want to be freed from my past life? From, do I want to be freed from the sin that's got me down. You want to be forgiven of that. And if the answer is yes, what are we waiting for? Let's go to the river. Let's go to the river. Let's go to the river. Let's go bend our knee to the throne. Say, Lord, your life, my life is yours. If you want to talk more about it, 
I'm here. I don't need soup today. I like soup, but I like this more. I'll talk to you about it today. Let's pray, and then we'll have communion, and then we'll uh, fellowship. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that uh, anything that's incorrect in my understanding, Father, that you correct me. I humbly come before you, Lord, and just want to hear on Judgment Day, well done, my good and faithful servant. I don't want to make mistakes when it comes to this, Father, and I don't want people that are reading this for themselves to misunderstand what you mean. Father, I pray for humility. I pray for guidance. I pray for wisdom for every one of us that reads this word and tries to understand what uh, your will is for our lives. I pray that you bless, uh, bless our food and our fellowship today. In Jesus' name, amen.